Hello. Hi. And welcome to Music Club, a podcast about music, music playing people, and other music-y things. I'm Chad Hunyu. I am Emily Tynan. And uh, you can follow us both on Instagram and Twitter at Music Club Pod, and you can find the sensuously grooving playlist for today's episode and all our past episodes on Spotify under our profile, Music Club Pod, which will be uh, linked in the show notes if we ever learn how to do that. <laughs> I know I, we've been saying that, and we haven't released anything, and I don't actually know how to do that, but maybe we will. I don't know. Do I it. think I think we're pretty uh, yeah savvy. We can figure it out. <laughs> Who's to say? Yeah. Well, Emily, 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 they think we're doing it wrong. But who are they to judge us just because our hair is long? Today, we are talking about a big one. One of the most iconic and beautiful albums of all time, an album that turned 50 this year. A work of art that was as equally an anguished political and social statement of the times as it was the chaotic personal journey of a tortured artist and human being, breaking free, climbing the ladder into the most heavenly level of artistic genius. Today, we are talking about Marvin Gaye's soaring, soulful, visionary 1971 masterpiece. What's going on? Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. But before we get too much more into it, I was like really hot energy there. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into it, we like to start off each episode with a little game we call the sampler platter. I'm excited. I'm ready. (laughs) By excited, I mean nervous, but ready. Here's how the sampler platter works. I'm going to play a classic song from the way back, and Emily is going to have to guess two things. What that original song is, and also the more modern pop or hip-hop song that sampled that original song for their equally awesome track. It being our first Marvin Gaye episode, there is but one song we can play for this sampler platter. Hmm. You ready, Emily? Sure. Here we go. Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye. Wow, coming in hot. <laughs> coming in hot. It's maybe my favorite song. Really? Yeah. Seriously. It's a good one. Sampled. Is it Michael? No. I'm going to give you a hint. Yeah. This is not like the normal sampling that we usually see here. Okay. Um, more of a... This song was influenced by this song or lifted from it or stolen from it. Oh. I honestly don't think I know, though. Okay. There was a big lawsuit about this song, um, the the more modern song. Okay. Um, there was also a very controversial uh, music video that was known for being pretty misogynistic. Kind of American Apparel vibes with the women who were in it. Oh, oh, oh! Um, blurred lines. That's right. Exactly. Got there, guys. That's you uh, sure did. What is his name? Uh, his name is Robin Thicke. And I almost he had, said Robin Thicke. Yeah, yeah. Robin Thicke and uh, Pharrell was on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, so, but before we get to Blurred Lines, um, Got to Give It Up was recorded in December 1976, released March 1977. It hit number one on the Billboard 100. Uh, and the song came out of a need to pay uh, child support to his separated wife, uh, Marvin's separated wife, uh, for their son because Marvin was deep in debt. And this is kind of like a running theme of Marvin's life in this late 70s period. Yep. Um, which maybe we'll talk about in another episode. Yeah. Um, but anyways, one of the coolest parts about the song is that party atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and so to get that, he actually just had a party like outside of the studio and set yeah. up mics. Really? Yeah. He just invited so his friends. this background noise that I'm uh-huh. hearing is an actual party. Yeah. That and is the coolest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. I know. It's pretty great, right? Yeah. Uh, Sorry. It <laughs> blew my mind. And... I love this factoid. Factoid? Okay, factoid. Uh, the host of Soul Train, Don Cornelius, yes. was there, and he was a good friend of Marvin Gaye's, and Marvin didn't know he was going to be there, and so if you, I guess if you listen to like the long 11-minute version or something, yeah. somewhere in that, he goes, Don, is that you? I didn't know you were going to be here. Oh, my And that's gosh. Don Cornelius. I tried to listen for it today. I couldn't find it, but... I'm going to have to I give it a gozies, right? see if I can sleuth it out. <laughs> Uh, that is really funny, cool. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned Michael Jackson because um, he and I think um, Quincy Jones were both really influenced by the song to create Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. I can hear that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. So, Blurred Lines. Ready? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Take me back. <laughs> Everybody get up. I did really like this song when it came out. I think we all did. <laughs> I still do. Yeah, I'm not mad about it. Wow, you can even hear it in like how there are like people t- like yelling things in the background right. and like that. Woo! Like you hear all of that. It's totally. very interesting. The rhythm is the same. Yes. Um, and a lot of the instrumentation. And then he's singing in his falsetto to start. That's yep. what Marvin Gaye is doing. Um, so this this is released March of 2013. I was in Eugene, Oregon. Mm. My last year of college. And my wife and I lived in this uh, like apartment, but it was like... It was like built out of this old like Victorian house. Oh, cool. And right next door to us was like basically a frat house. Oh, wow. And when this song was released for two months straight. No. Nothing but this no. song on repeat so loud. Lucky that's all you. all those boys listen to. <laughs> <laughs> I still like the song. Yeah, it was a banger. Yeah, it was a huge song. It went to number one for 12 consecutive weeks. Isn't that crazy? Wow. I know. Um, yeah, so we talked about the, the music video a little bit and... Uh, I mean, that's how you, that's how I ended up putting two and two together was yeah. American Apparel vibes. <laughs> we got there. Yeah. So yeah, so Robin Thicke said he loved Got got to Give It Up and he wanted to make it a song inspired by it. Mm. And you know, when you fly a little too close to the sun, yeah. sometimes you end up making the same exact song. <laughs> um, anyways, Marvin Gaye's family did sue uh, Robin Thicke over it and actually... And I think miraculously they won. Wow. Um, which means that Marvin Gaye's family uh, they get royalties because he's now an official songwriter on on the he's track. He's listed. Well, yeah, he, I mean he's they sued to because 
it, it's the same thing as sampling, right? right? You used my song, so I should get songwriting credit yeah. on it. Exactly. So yeah, he's a, he's an official songwriter wow. on it. That is fascinating. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because usually in those those copyright infringement things with music in yeah. particular, um, it's usually about the melody or the chord structure or something like that, and it's not usually about the rhythm or like even the vibe of the song, right? Like right. you were talking about how they're doing the woos in the background and all that. Yeah. Like they've recreated the vibe and the rhythm of the song mm-hmm. and a little bit of the structure and stuff. And usually that doesn't hold up in court. Yeah. And like my, one of the examples I like to say is like, you know the Bo Diddley beat? Excuse me? The Bo Diddley beat. So the Bo Diddley beat is boot da boot da boot da ga ga. Oh yeah. Yeah. So think about how many songs that's been used. Well, the first thing that popped in my head was George Michael's Faith. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, like that, Bo Diddley doesn't get songwriting credit on that. Yeah. Even though he was kind of the first one to really use it in popular music. Huh. That is interesting. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting, you know, an awesome thing that they won. Yeah. Okay. Enough Robin Thicke. Enough of that. Let's get into what's going on. What an incredible record. Absolutely. Um, an album about the times and about the specific. It, it's about the Vietnam War, police brutality, brutality, desperately hard times for black communities in early 1970s America. Yeah. At the same time, it's an album about things so universal, love, community, spirituality, war, injustice, and inequality. It may always be relevant and powerful to the people who are fortunate enough to listen to it. Yeah. When did you first hear what's going on? I mean, I was definitely a kid. Like, I remember I remember my dad playing this album. Cool um, dad. Very cool dad. <laughs> cool guy. Cool guy. And I also remember hearing it on the radio, you know, maybe on like a, a classic station. Um, did you hear what's going on or did you hear um like mercy mercy me i heard that one too yeah Yeah, mercy mercy me was huge for me i loved that song um and i remember when i first got my uh itunes library going Mm -hmm. (laughs) throwing it back but those were some of the first songs i downloaded was those two specifically huh yeah um and what we just listened to is got to give it up i i love that song oh i thought you meant robin thick no (laughs) not blurred lines (laughs) let me be clear um but yeah that's interesting i found got to give it up like way later in life really yeah it was not like and i listened to marvin gay yeah since i was really young like i've always loved marvin right gay. i remember this is funny so i remember in uh i used to go to jewish like summer camp yeah like, stay stay away camp for like yeah um, yeah, yeah stay away um <laughs> sleep away that's what they call it is they call it sleep away camp, sleep yeah. Away camp. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah um and i remember like having my mp3 player i guess it was an mp3 player it wasn't even an ipod wow i know i know okay and i remember before i left i was like just getting into like classic rock the first year i went and Mm -hmm. and i guess motown because the things i remember most listening to at that summer camp was led zeppelin Mm. and marvin gay i remember to listen like ain't no mountain high enough and that kind of stuff what a combo oh yeah well you know it's me yeah it's Uh, chad in a nutshell but i remember kind of being like almost embarrassed of it Mm. Or like I didn't want to like tell the friends I had that I, that's what I was listening to. Like I told them I was listening to Led Zeppelin. Huh. But now I just like. Do you okay? So were you listening to more of like the Motown? More of Marvin's Marvin. like early stuff. I mean that's great stuff too. Hundred percent. Yeah. It's all great stuff. It's all. I mean it's all great. Yeah. But I I, I was the same way. Like I think I heard what's going on and, and definitely Mercy Mercy Me on the radio when I was young. Yes. So those songs have always been with me. Yeah. Um. But it was until like high school that i really like listened to the whole record as a whole and was sure. like holy crap yeah and i was in a music program in, in high school and 
that allowed us and really encouraged us to look at that older music and oh, and study and like it explore. and yeah and to and to analyze it and to love it yeah um yeah. i think um for me what's going on i'll put on the same level of uh, imagine john lennon's imagine like mm-hmm. both of those songs i remember when i listened to them i felt like emotionally so like moved and connected to the lyrics mm-hmm. that and it was just so powerful right like everything they were saying in in those songs i remember being very moved by because of course musically they're they're both beautiful songs i'll mm-hmm. just talk about what's going on because that's what this episode is about but I think a lot of what is being said in that song also why it's so popular and why it's, you know, resonated with so many people is because it is this like question of like, why are we treating each other this way? Like, why aren't we loving each other? It's an eternal question. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so universal. Um, And I think before we go any further, I think we should preface the rest of the episode by saying that Emily, a red haired Catholic raised woman (laughs) and me, an overfed, long haired, leaping gnome. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, I don't know. A well-fed Jewish male from yeah, Orange yeah. County, California. Uh, we're both white. Yeah. So as we talk about this album, an album that talks so directly about problems black people were having in America in the early 1970s and are distressingly still struggling with today. Um, an album that means so much to so many black people and people of color. We would just like to say that we are going to do our best. Yeah. Um, our word and opinions are are obviously not fact, and we understand the ground upon which we walk is not our own. We have only the best of intentions, but if we do get something wrong or make an assertion or assumption or say anything that offends anyone of color, we apologize ahead of time, but also encourage you to send us an email to tell us so because we want to know when we make mistakes and to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the the biggest things with this kind of a conversation is just like accepting that you're learning. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um. So let's go. Let's get into it. Yeah, let's um, do it. So album is 50 now. This year, That's 1971, wild. 2021. Holy crap. The big 5-0. <laughs> and when I was listening to this album like 100 times in preparation for this, and mm-hmm. then just like, I think we both kind of did a deep dive into Marvin Gaye just based off of like the fact that we were going to do this one episode on this one album. Right. I just had this feeling where I was like, I'm so fucking happy that i get to live in a world where we have all of marvin Gaye's music yeah but especially this album yes and i do feel really bad for all the people who lived and died in like the 1890s that blows yeah i'm sorry for you (laughs) seriously think about it yeah no for sure sucks for them yeah i also think it's it's very uh very cool that we live in an age where it's so easily accessible Mm-hmm. Right. Like we didn't have to go to the record store and, and scour for his full collection and, you know, yeah. try and get a hold of that music. Like it's as easy as pushing a couple buttons on I your mean, phone. I mean, yeah, we can we can click on what's going on on Spotify right now and yep. choose any song we want. And yet I still feel like the best way to listen to this album mm-hmm. is all the way through. And that was intentional, right? Yeah. Which we are going to get into. Yeah. Um, This album is really, really unique for a lot of different reasons um but i i want to ask you this and i'm not trying to be rhetorical have you ever heard another album that sounds like this as far as like the actual sound no it's very unique but i do think what he does beautifully in this album and i think all really really truly great artists do with their work is tell you a story 
and take you through this like journey of the album start to finish. And I think that that is something that he does great. But as far as sound, I mean, no, I don't think I've ever heard anything quite like this. Yeah, it's it's really unique musically. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote that like it's in the heavenly space between soul, R&B, classical music, pop and jazz. It's a total witch's brew that in anyone else's hands other than maybe Curtis Mayfield's. Mm-hmm. It might have nosedived off a cliff and we would have never even heard of it. Yeah. It's he toes like in such an interesting line. Sure. And it's such an amalgamation of, of sounds and um and musical styles. What and I'm, we might talk about this, but what was the album that came out before this? Like what was the vibe of that? Um yeah, we're gonna talk about that. That's okay. the like I heard it through the grapevine era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So very, very different. Very, this very was different. him Super a leap different. of faith. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and it, and there's so many reasons for why it's so unique. Um, a lot of them intentional, a lot of them unintentional. Mm. Like I said, it was very chaotic. Sure. Um, in Marvin's life, but also in the recording studio, and there were a lot of impulsive decisions made. Um, th- I mean, there are stories of a legendary bass player recording songs flat on his back because he was too drunk to stand. Oh my gosh. This, this story might uh, touch on the Detroit Lions, uh, <laughs> professional ego-driven standoffs. Um, but a lot of it has to do with you know what was happening in America and, and in Marvin's personal life. A lot of it was really heartbreakingly sad. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this album is... To me, a revolutionary breakthrough for Marvin as an artist and for Motown and for music and soul music yeah. in general. I think his music styling really changes after this. He totally comes into his own. Yeah. It, it's the moment that he takes control of his own art. Yeah. He breaks away from that Motown mold and is now Marvin Gaye. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so visionary and revolutionary at the time that, I mean, the album almost got canned like 90 times. I didn't know that. By like Barry Gordy, um, by the way that the Motown structure was set up to where there's like, there's like an actual board mm-hmm. where they make decisions. Right. Um, and Barry Gordy still has like the final word no matter what. Paco, <laughs> sorry, we're recording this episode with a very small chihuahua and he's... He's, I think he's a little sad that he can't get out right now. <laughs> he wants to participate. He likes Marvin Gaye. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's this like board that actually makes decisions. Um, that's like, this is a good Motown song. Or you know what? You guys need to go re-record this or we're canning this song or album. Right. Um, and they really tried to sync this album, but because mm. of Marvin's stature um, and some other stuff that we're going to get into, right? Um, uh, he gets it through really. Yeah. Well, and, and, and maybe it, who he was married to helped him. Get totally. It. And we're going to get in, We're going to get into that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think she, uh, his wife, Anna Gordy, who's Barry Gordy's um, sister. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if she really plays too much a part in this other than like it's the context of of Marvin being Barry Gordy's uh, brother-in-law. Brother-in-law. Right? Yeah. But I do think that that holds weight. It's cr- Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's like an important yeah. part of the context. Mm-hmm. So. Where we need to start is basically the late 60s. Okay. And, and like that that era, I was saying, the, the I heard it through the grapevine era. Mm-hmm. But I want to give like a brief overlay of, of the whole 60s with him and Motown to get there. Um, it's going to be very brief. It won't be like sure, the history of disco. Chad. <laughs> Five hours later. All right, let's talk about what's going on. <laughs> um, I'm going to try not to do that. Uh, so Marvin had been with Motown since 1961. Uh, he'd worked his way up the totem pole. Like he was 
when he first started, he was like, just like sweeping floors, basically. Wow. He was just trying to get into Motown. He was, he learned how to play drums. Like he didn't play drums. And then he was like, I think it was on like a few early Marvelette songs playing drums. Like he was just trying to make his way through. He's just, he's trying yeah. to get in there, you know? And, and he, then he becomes Motown's biggest star. He becomes the prince of Motown. Uh, and he gives the label its biggest hit in 1968 with, I heard it through the grapevine. Mm. Um, a gargantuan American classic that if you don't know it, I have to ask, were you even born on this planet? <laughs> Come on. Well, and Motown was like a Mecca for people, right? So he was probably drawn to like the totally. promise that like, this is where you go to become a star. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's from Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And at that time, 1960, 1961, like Motown had just started. Yeah. I think 5960 Money um, was their first big hit and yeah it was a total mecca for black artists yeah um we know marvin today as sort of this embodiment of motown right mm-hmm. like like ain't ain't no mountain high enough right a classic but we also know him for the sensual soul stuff that he's doing later in the 70s yeah um and everything from songs like how sweet it is to be loved by you let's get it on sexual healing like he just has an incredible catalog he does but when marvin first started when he came to Motown, he wanted to be a jazz standard singer, a la Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra. The words, I love you. Each memory that we share. Oh, you ignore every star above you. You were nodding your head because Emily, <laughs> wa- as well as I did, watched this PBS yeah, documentary. Yeah, it was PBS. I was shocked to find that out. I thought that was so interesting. And I also, like, unfortunately, because of the state of the world at the time, who knows how far we've come, but um, it was not well received that he was putting out that music because he was a black artist. He wasn't seeing the success, correct? I, I don't know if it was that. I think it was that... It was more internal at Motown. They're like, you shouldn't do this. Hmm. Like, you should be making the pop songs we want you to make. Right. It was um, like him rebelling against. And minority. I think it was sort of the the times. Like that's where music was at that time. Um. Yeah, but I I don't know too much more about that. Oh, okay. I thought that that's what they said. Is that what they said? I thought so. Hey, well then there you go. Because like, you know, the Frank Sinatras of their of that time were doing really well, but he couldn't seem to kind of break through. Right. But they were really established by that it's point. It's very true. It's very true. Um, and he was like twenty. Yeah, he was you a know? kid. He was baby. a baby. Um but yeah, it was just hilarious. Like I I thought that like the the straw fedora hat he used to wear. Oh my gosh. Smoking a pipe. Like the so whole ridiculous. The whole look, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He really he really tried to do that. But he did record a few of these albums in this jazzy style mm-hmm. um, during that first like half of the 60s with Motown. They they actually put them out. Um, I gave you a couple of those songs to listen to for your homework. Yes. What did you think of them? I thought they were great. Yeah. I, I didn't. I, I, I mean, they're like standards. So it's like, you know. Yeah. I, I thought they were good, though. Did you. Did you like Marvin singing those things? It was interesting. Yeah. I don't yeah, know that I would is. like seek it out. Though. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, but it was definitely exactly interesting. I yeah. I think of it only in the context of like, this is interesting that Marvin did this. Yeah. I don't love it. 
Yeah. And I love jazz. I, I love yeah. King Cole. I love all that stuff. Um, but I don't know what it is. I think it might be like Marvin's vocal register, like mm. his range. I just don't associate his range maybe with that music. Do you like, also think like it's that you don't associate his like him as an artist with that kind of music that it's a little bit hard for your brain to be like, yes yeah, and this no. is good. Yes and no, because yeah. what he's doing on what's going on is is clearly so inflected with jazz and improvisation and so much stuff that I don't know. I just don't. Yeah. It's just weird. It's just weird to me when I hear those songs. Yeah. I just think they're interesting. Yeah. It's a little, a little odd. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's interesting in, in terms of this album, like I say, I said, because, because of the jazz influence on this album. The other thing is that all the studio musicians who record all the Motown songs, um, they're a band called, or they're a collective called the Funk Brothers. Mm-hmm. Legends. These guys were all jazz guys. Yeah. They all were jazz guys before coming to Motown. Sure. Um, super duper talented. Yeah. And I think that in what's going on, Mar- Marvin finally figures out how to put all those jazz influences that they all have, all this knowledge and desire to play this music into the same bag as pop and R&B and soul. And it makes spiritual magic. Yeah. And were they like the house, essentially the house band for like anyone that was coming in and recording a song? Yeah. That is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like everyone. The Supremes, The Temptations, yeah. all the, I mean, they were all singers. Sure. Uh, Marvin Gaye played instruments. Yeah. Um, he played piano. He could play drums. You know, there's a lot of, of people who, who could play instruments, but like for the most part, it was the house band that was playing every single one of these songs. Yeah. I mean, that is very interesting. I feel like in that documentary, they talk about how Motown was like a well-oiled machine and they had like a way of just like cranking it out. And totally. that was part of it, you know? Yeah. And they, they did that cliche where they're like, it was like the General Motors I know, uh, I can't. factory. <laughs> An assembly line Detroit, of music. Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But it really was. I mean, and they even set up like the way that company worked, how Motown worked, where it, like you do have Barry Gordy at the top, but you have this, uh, uh, you know, control board. You know, overseeing everything. And then you have the songwriters over here. You have the producers over here. You have the house band over here. And you have the artists over there. Yeah. And it was like all these different departments. Yeah. And with what's going on, Marvin goes, fuck that. <laughs> fuck it. Yeah. Um, and he throws all that out the window. And and he really gets immersed as himself, as a producer, as a writer. Yeah. And uh, collaborating with people. And, and finally, actually giving the Funk Brothers and these studio musicians the shine that they've always deserved because they were never credited on any Motown songs. Wow. So on the album sleeve, they actually get Their uh, notoriety. Yeah. yeah. So that was really cool. I love that. Yeah, totally. Um, we mentioned Anna Gordy, Marvin Gaye's wife. Um, Anna Gordy was how much older than Marvin? Do you remember? I'm just going to say a lot maybe like 15 years that sounds right it was a lot it was a pretty solid gap yeah i think she was maybe 36 yeah 21 she was definitely in her 30s and he was definitely like 21 22 when they got married which is crazy but again she works for the company she's barry gordy gordy's sister yeah um it does seem from accounts that they did have some kind of genuine love at the beginning yes um but their relationship does get very tumultuous through the 60s and definitely in the 70s oh yeah not great but um it doesn't seem to play that much of a factor in this album um their relationship at that time she even uh co-writes a couple of the songs really yeah okay okay but as we said him being barry gordy's brother-in-law 
definitely is a context for how this album even gets to be made. Right. If you think it's kind of crazy that Marvin married a woman so much older than him when he was just 21, you should know that Marvin was a complicated, complicated human being. Definitely. Also, I will say in that PBS documentary, they interviewed somebody talking about their relationship and the guy was oh, like, yeah. <laughs> it like killed me. He like, just like stared right down the camera and he was like, she was fine. I would have hooked up with her. And I was only like 18. Okay. Like, <laughs> I did like that. That was hilarious. I was like, okay, okay, okay. That's, 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 that makes a lot of sense, yeah. you know? <laughs> but, uh, Marvin is, is really, again, extremely complicated He's an incredibly talented person. Um, he's deep. He's spiritual. He's thoughtful. But he is incredibly stubborn. He can be incredibly e- egotistical and competitive. Um, and and he's just kind of odd. He hates performing live. He's noted for, like, he can't dance. Yeah. Like, the the dudes were ripping him up in the, in the documentary. They're like, he danced like a, a white guy. Yeah. That's what they're saying. Yeah. And, like, and they were, like, saying he would take the stage and start dancing. And they would all be, like, making fun of him on well, the side. Were, yeah, and they were like, so it was, uh, some of the women in the documentary were like, we were like literally trying to teach him. Like yes. we would do like lessons. Yes. <laughs> How to do the hitchhike, which was one of his songs. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but he loves being in the studio. Like he's a total creative and he loves the studio. Um, he kind of has, um, um, what's the word for like depression that's up and down? Like bipolar? Yeah. yeah. I think he's kind of bipolar. Yeah, possibly. I'm maybe undiagnosed or something, but he's, sure. yeah, he's often plagued by depression and self-doubt throughout his life. I think, I don't know if we're going to talk about this in this episode, but I, I do think a lot of that plays into the fact um, that he had a very complicated relationship with his father. 100%. Um, and his father never really approved of what he was doing. His father was also a pastor mm-hmm. and a cross-dresser, Hundred, yep, which exactly. I didn't know, which if you think mm-hmm. of that duality in a single person must have been very confusing for yep. not only Marvin's father, but for Marvin, you know what I mean? Like growing up and seeing your dad in these two different mm-hmm. roles in his life. Um, and I think that... And, and not, not give you the same um, space to do the same thing. No. Right? Yeah. There was no Like you said, duality. Room. Like, and he was extremely abusive to Marvin, yes. really hard on him, and also abusive to Marvin's mother, who Marvin loves yes. and adores, and is kind of always seeking out in his life. And I kind of think that's also the, something that plays into his relationship with Anna Gordy being Absolutely. so much older. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you don't know, um, really, his relationship, Marvin Gaye's relationship with his father and how, you know, Marvin Gaye's life ends, I do encourage you to look it up. It's really heartbreaking. Um God, just such a, such a tortured artist, really. Yeah. Okay, so Marvin's career throughout the 60s is just a smooth stairway toward the top. He just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. He records a staggering amount of songs um, and albums. Uh, he even writes songs for other Motown artists. He performs on their songs. Um, we all know hits like Stubborn Kind of Fella, It Takes Two, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. These are all in the early part of his 60s career. Later in the decade, he records I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which is a massive song for Motown um, and is totally different from his earlier work. His voice is way more stressed mm-hmm. in these songs. He's being pushed to sing in this uh, this range and register that he's not comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and it sounds gritty. It sounds powerful um, and anguished at the same time. Yeah. Um, Marvin hates this. 
Really? Yeah, hates okay. it. He hates singing like this. He's much more comfortable when he's able to go up into his falsetto um, and be the smooth, silky singer that he is. So does he hate this song? I don't think he hates the songs. He just doesn't like singing like he that. He hates it. And, and it, it contributes to his relationship with Barry Gordy. Mm. Okay. So the other thing that really happens in the late 60s that's tragic is that... Um, is the story with Tammy Terrell, his singing partner. Of course. Um, he starts recording with Tammy Terrell in, I think, 1967. They record some of the most famous Motown songs, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, uh, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, one of my favorites. Marvin was incredibly close with Tammy. Um, by all accounts, it was entirely platonic. They were just friends. No sexy time. No sexy time. But no, he was really, really close with her. Yeah, and he ran through a couple of other, you know, they kept trying to pair him off with a woman vocalist oh, to really? sing these duets. Yeah, in the PBS uh, documentary, they like talk about other this. Other ones? Yeah, so there were like, like no. other girls and he it just wasn't working. <laughs> it, they weren't vibing. And then he sang a song with Tammy and I oh, can't remember yeah, what yeah, their yeah. first right. song was, but both of them just were like, this person is Clicked. perfect for me. Yeah. Uh, musically. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what's tragic about this story is that in 1967, while Marvin and Tammy Terrell are are singing on stage together at a show, she collapses in, in Marvin's arms. Yeah. Um, and she gets rushed to the hospital. They find, and she's diagnosed with uh, a brain tumor. Um, that tumor becomes cancerous, and she goes through treatment and stuff and she's able to make it back and they record more songs uh, you know up until 1970 and then she she dies at the age yeah. of 24 so sad and people say that that Marvin just went into this insanely deep depression because of this I think he starts using a lot more cocaine at this time really I thought he started yeah. using cocaine when he moved to California but it was before that I think this is kind of all the same period okay got yeah it. but I I, Actually, I don't know you're I right. could, be, I no, could no, be no. wrong about that I'm pretty sure you're right um, yeah, like he, he really, people say he never got over her death Yeah, and this depression sets him off into like this kind of wilderness period where he's like trying to find himself. Mm -hmm. He's even trying to like change his career to be a professional athlete. I remember this. Yes. Yeah. Didn't he like, uh, he wanted to play baseball no, or something? Football. Football. So That's he right. starts hanging out with, uh, members of the Detroit Lions. Yeah. Like he becomes friends with them. Um, and he like starts training to try to be a professional football player. Yeah. He was just a little lost. Yeah. And he, he grows a beard at this time. He starts wearing track suits, which is basically his, his thing for the rest yeah. of his, his, aesthetic. His, his aesthetic for his life. And he ends this clean cut appearance that he had donned in his early Motown days. Right. Um, and so, at the same time as this is all happening, the Vietnam War has never been worse. Yeah. And his brother actually goes and fights over there. Yeah. And he's sending Marvin um, these letters back to him, recounting all these crazy things that are happening. Um, and those really, really affect Marvin. And then when Marvin's brother does come back, his brother was, I think, kind of shocked to find out what's going on in America with 
these massive Vietnam protests and like the police, even at a place like Kent State, killing four people, which happens in uh, 1970. Right. Um, And the civil rights movement is ongoing. At the end of the decade, uh, a lot of famous uh, leaders are dead, are dead are assassinated Marvin uh, or Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. uh, Bobby Kennedy, yeah. um, Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Marvin had even recorded a song called um, Abraham, Martin, and John that I put on your homework. Yes. That was on, I think, his last album right before What's Going On. Okay. And that song to me is like, he's like hinting at stuff. Yeah. He's, he's ready to start talking about it. Yeah. But with what's going on and one of the things that I think is so interesting about this album is the way that he so plainly talks about things. Yeah, very openly. And I remember in the documentary, um, them talking about he would just like sit with his friends and talk about what was going on with the war and everything racially being charged in the United States mm-hmm. and like literally crying right. with his, fr- like, I, I can't remember who it was with, but he would just sit there and cry and he was just so upset about yeah. what was happening. And so he's feeling this way since 1965, reportedly, after after the Watts riots. That's insane. Yeah, and he's and he tells Barry Gordy, "How can I keep singing love songs when all this stuff is going on going on around me?" And Barry yeah. Gordy's just like, "Keep singing pop songs, keep making money, like just keep it. We're not we're not talking about that stuff." Right. And so it's this huge deal that he's able to talk about this stuff on this on this album. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to stop here and just play what's going on. Let's do it. And we're going to talk about the entire story, this incredible story about how the song What's Going On gets made. It's it's miraculous. Incredible. You know, it's funny that we were talking about what's going on earlier, or mm-hmm. I'm sorry, got to give it up yeah. earlier during the sample platter, and you said that there was a party going on in the background. Was there a party going on in the background of this song too? So this, there's a story for this. Tell me. So I mentioned he was friends with the Detroit Lions. Yes. So, and a couple other football players. That's who he's hanging out with at this period. And one night, uh, I heard one of the <laughs> I heard one of the football players on a podcast actually mm-hmm. talking about this. He said Marvin just said we're going to the studio, and so he grabbed them all, went to the studio, and he told them what he wanted wanted to happen. And they had a little party there, and they recorded all this stuff. So is it just them having a conversation in the background though, or I was, was he saying like I want you to say this? I think he I think he was like this is kind of the vibe I'm going for. Yeah. Can you guys do this? And they were all about it, and huh. but. Marvin just says this stuff to them and they still are improvising and creating what they're saying. Like, like solid brother. Like, like what's happening. My favorite is that everything is everything, man. (laughs) (laughs) And even the, the, like that wasn't planned. Okay. It's really, really cool. And, and just such an interesting way to make a song too, is to be like, Hey everybody, let's all 
stand in a room. Yeah, and, and I think I think this that part of it was probably recorded after and then sure. spliced in. But like, it's just this idea of like all this improv- improvisation and chaos kind of going on, and it just all works as we're gonna see. Right. Um, did you know that this song was not originally written by Marvin Gaye? No. Yeah. Who wrote it? So, Obi Benson of the Four Tops originally wrote this song. Mm. So Obi Benson witnesses Bloody Thursday, mm. um, which is this violent um, act of police brutality uh, against yeah. these anti-war protesters. Yeah. Um, and Benson just says in his own words, I saw this and started wondering what was going on? What is happening here? Mm-hmm. One question led to another. Why are they sending kids far away from their families overseas? Why are they attacking their own kids in the street? So he writes a song um, with one of the Motown songwriters, Al Cleveland, presents it to the Four Tops. They turn it down, saying it's a protest song. That's not their thing, right? right. The whole Motown thing is not that. But Benson says, no, man, it's a, it's a love song. It's about love and understanding. I'm not protesting. I just want to know what's going on, right? It is a protest song, though. Totally. <laughs> totally agree. Um, but because of this, he, he offers the song to Marvin Gaye, and Marvin is reluctant at first. Uh, but then he says he'll do it if he can change some things, add some things, and make it his own and also receive a songwriting credit mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Benson says again, uh, in his own words, he added some things that were more ghetto, more natural, uh, which made it seem like a story and not a song. We measured him for the suit and he tailored the hell out of it. I love that. Obi Benson also tried to offer the song to Joan ba- Baez. Really? And she didn't go for it. Huh. I was shocked by that. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. I do love that Marvin took it though and made it his own. Totally. You know? A hundred percent. Um, I, I wonder like what I'm trying to was picture the original version of it. And yeah. what did Marvin add? I'm also trying to picture the four tops singing this. Oh song. my god, right. Like, totally. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but I think maybe some people would have thought I think people were started kind of thinking the same thing about Marvin Gaye recording the song. Sure. At least Barry Gordy. Yeah. Right. It's it's pretty hard to describe like the mastery that's going on in the song. Yeah. Um, but we're gonna try. <laughs> <laughs> um, and a lot of that is the Funk Brothers. Okay. You know, um, a lot of that is the musicians who play so on the song. They're still the band that's playing with him. Yeah. Okay. They're still in the Motown band. And oh yeah, because you a Motown said, production. Yeah, because you said this is the first time they're credited on an album. Yes. Okay. Yes, and. My favorite story, as I as I alluded to earlier, is that um, James Jamerson, which is like maybe the most famous bassist of the Funk Brothers, mm-hmm. they either had to go get him at a club he was performing at, even though he was supposed to be booked for this recording. Yeah. And he was so drunk that they had to bring him in and he couldn't even drive himself. Or he was so drunk he forgot about the studio, uh, the recording or something. But he was so drunk at the recording that he could not like stay on his stool without falling over <laughs> that they just put him on the ground and he played on his back. And if you listen to the song, you cannot tell at all that James Jamerson is drunk. He is so good. That is insanity. And but the fact that he was so drunk that they had to like get him there he couldn't even sit on a stool and then still and and flawless another another part of that story was like um i think one of the other guys that was helping songwriter or produce with marvin um like wrote his bass lines right there right then oh they're like james you're gonna play this 
Like, look at me, look at me. Okay, got it. So he's right? so hammered and having to like yeah. read this music for the first time. I, I think so. Yeah. Wow. I think that's kind of how it worked though. Yeah. <laughs> I just like I can't imagine being that hammered and doing anything. Yeah. At my normal caliber. Uh huh. Yeah. And a lot of these recordings, um, these studio recording sessions of this song, are similar. Hmm. It's chaos. It's party. It's party. It's like, oh, try this, try that, or whatever. And through all this improvisation, like you get something beautiful out of it. Sure. And the same thing goes for the post-production. Yeah. Marvin famously um, remixes this like a few times. Mm -hmm. And he remixes not only this, but the whole album right before it gets printed. Interesting. He steals the tapes. What? Yes. He steals the tapes. (laughs) And flies them out to some other uh, studio just to be with this one guy. And they remix the whole thing. And it becomes the version that we now know today. Wow. And so I was kind of starting to think. I was like, huh. So was the original single version the same as what we're hearing today? It probably wasn't. Right. Because it was for the album cut. Yeah. Um, And I did find a... a, Maybe the version of it? The original Detroit mix is what it was called. Um. This was part of song. my homework. Yes, it was. And so I'm going to I'm going to play that and we're going to just briefly discuss it. So, first thing we notice is that there's no party scene. Right. It also feels a lot more Motown vibey to me. I also agree with that. Right? Like it feels more like a product of. One of the things that I was shocked that I didn't realize before is how prominent the guitar is in the song. Yeah. But in that final mix that we know of, like on the album, the guitar kind of just mixes in with everything. Yeah. It's just kind of atmosphere, but I really noticed the guitar in this Mm -hmm. version of the song. I also noticed like the percussion is like very centered. Yeah. It doesn't vibe the, the right way to me. Right. And his voice is being on opposite sides of the, the speakers doesn't really. Right. And the harmonies are a lot more prominent. Yeah. Which, which brings that Motown vibe in, right? You hear That's like true. Those, That's a good point. Ah, like they're, they're a lot yeah. more loud and in your face. Yeah. So I just thought that that, that, um, that version is so interesting because you can really see what Marvin did himself, yeah. his choices. Yeah. And these last minute impulsive choices that that end up making this brilliant album what it is. Sure. The other thing I want to talk about with this song is just how massively important it was to the people. Uh-huh. So it's a, it's the, it's a huge smash. I think it stays on the charts for an entire year. A year? A whole year. Like not not up at the top, but like it's but on still, the chart for a whole year. I mean, it may, I mean, have you heard it? <laughs> <laughs> that that checks out. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, as I'm listening to all these podcasts and reading all these these stories, um about this song, everyone felt the same way um, on Heat Rocks, which is another podcast. Um, and they talk about this album. Um, they have on this guy named Father Omdi, who is from uh, Watts Prophets, which were like a musical slash activist protest group. Okay. Um, they kind of were doing like, you know, like slam poetry with like music in the background kind of a thing. Wilden. Yeah. So. Father Amdi is like definitely in this world that Marvin is talking about. Yeah. Like he was in Watts. He's in a struggling black city mm-hmm. and 
he's seeing all this stuff that Marvin's talking about. Yeah. I think he was even a user of heroin. And so songs like um, Flying High and The Friendly Sky really hit yeah. home for him. And he says like, you know, when he was kind of at the place where they all worked and came up with ideas and, and stuff that w- one of his friends would just put on the record mm-hmm. and just play it over and over and over again when he needed to be inspired and do the work that they were there to do. I love that. The other thing that happened was a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. um, we had Mikkel's family over uh, for dinner. And, you know, I was doing my thing, Spotify, DJing. And the song came on. And we were all just around the the coffee table in the living room just chatting. It was pretty loud. We were pretty drunk at that point. Sure, sure. And... (laughs) You know, family. (laughs) Mikkel's 80-something-year-old grandma, when this song comes on, she's looked at me immediately, goes, can you please turn this up? Now, Mikkel's grandma is this like very sweet but very conservative you know yeah. older white lady yeah um not someone i would have thought liked this kind of music but it's universal it's i universal, think that is what that's why it stayed on the charts for years totally. because it doesn't matter who you are obviously he was speaking to a specific population which he was a part yes. of but it doesn't matter who you are you connect with this song on a spiritual level could not agree more yeah and it just kind of shocked me i was like So, and I was starting to think about like, okay, she's probably like 30 something at the time. Yeah. You know, she's a mother of like three young kids. Like I just, I just wanted to ask her so much more about it. it (laughs) And you're like like prepping for this pod. So you're like, let me talk to you. Right. But it was like the whole family was there. I was like, not the time. Yeah. (laughs) Read the room, Chad. (laughs) I do wonder like how she was feeling at the time. Why this song still stands out to her. Yeah. You know, it's, it was that impactful of a song. Yeah. That um, she stopped, looked at you and said, can you please turn this up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the last thing I want to get to is how this song never came out and this album was never made. Excuse me? Yeah. Uh, so he he finally gets Barry Gordy to agree to even allow him to record the song and mm-hmm. do what he will with it. Okay. Right. So he does that. He takes it to Barry Gordy and Barry Gordy says, what do you think? Shelf it. <laughs> it's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Of course. Of course. So, of course, Marvin goes on strike until Gordy changes his mind. He won't record anything else. He won't go on tour. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that's a fucking power move if I've ever heard one. Two stubborn guys. Yeah. But also, like, when you know that you have something this good and someone's telling you no. But also, like, a decade of being like, you have to do this. You have to do that. Sure. You have to record this. You have yeah. to record that. It's a pushback. He's he's going for his his creative freedom. This is his moment. Can I ask? Mm-hmm. And I know this is a little off topic, but is this around the time? Is this before or after he recorded the man, which was just released last year? Okay, you're the man. Uh, yeah, that the album man. is Sorry. right after this one. Okay, I think it's right after this one or the the checks um, out. <laughs> yeah, black exploitation film. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, album he does. Okay, that all aligns. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Um. Gordy in particular, like doesn't, he says, quote, that Dizzy Gillespie stuff in the middle, that scatting, it's old. So the beep boo doo doos. <laughs> hey, did you guys just hear Chad scat? Because <laughs> I heard it. <laughs> but he's like, later on in other interviews, he's like, I didn't, I liked that stuff. I just didn't think it was right. Okay. You know, he was worried about Marvin's continued crossover appeal. Do you know what that term means? For to the white audiences, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but he was wrong. He's he was just straight up wrong, and 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 it's it's 
I think it's hard when you were in such a mode where like we do one thing and we do it really well. Yeah. That when, you know, something new, something um, yeah. iconic comes along, I think there's always going to be pushback. And Motown's Quality Control Board, that's what it was called, they also turned down the song. Interesting. But one of the, um, I don't know, I'm trying to figure out who it was, but one of the guys also kind of up in there uh, making decisions, he goes behind Barry Gordy's back and releases the song anyways. <gasps> That's how it gets out. And before Barry Gordy knows it, it's a huge hit. I'm picturing like a dude sneaking into a building with like <laughs> gloves and like all black with a ski mask being like, <laughs> and running out the front yeah. door and releasing a tape right now. <laughs> How do you sneak release something? How does know. that happen? I don't, know. I don't know. Do you just send it anonymously to like a, a, I think, a radio station? I think he had some amount of power and he's like, all right, we're making this amount of, of records and yeah. he sends them out. Sure. So I mean, now you're it's right. out there because Barry Gordy is at the top of the food chain. But there, obviously, there's always stuff happening in the middle. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it becomes a hit before Barry Gordy knows it, and Barry Gordy goes. To, Marvin goes, "I need you to make the rest of the album." Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. And Marvin's like, "No, I don't know. No, I'm not gonna make it." Wait, so Marvin had only made this song, just that song. Oh, so it was just a single. Just a single. Okay. Exactly, and so Barry Gordy knowing you know, who Marvin Gaye is as a man by this point, makes him a bet for an undisclosed amount of money that he couldn't record that album, even if he tried in 30 days. Oh my God. Marvin takes the bait. Of course. Of course. Of course. This is, he's such an interesting person. Um, But you know, whether that or not, that's true. That's kind of an apocryphal story. Yeah. The album does get made and it gets made in 10 days. (gasps) 10? I'm sorry. That's so shocking. Ten. It's. I honestly just read. Went. Wrote. Ten days. Lo 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 lo. That is insanity. No, but seriously, because like, obviously, this is the iconic song off of the album that is titled after the yeah. iconic song. But like, the rest of the album is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's not like a standalone song that's really great, and the rest of the album is fine. Like mm-hmm. the fact that that was made in ten days is it, earth shattering. I think so too. Um, and, and even better than that, Marvin Gaye gets to produce it. Mm. He writes everything or co-writes everything and he really gets to have his creative freedom. And this is the first time this, that that's happened for him. Yes. Yeah. The rest of the album, especially side A is written. So each song kind of flows into the next one. Yeah. Um, it's amazing and it works so well as an album. Um, and this is just not something that's done in Motown at those days. It was super experimental. It was super groundbreaking. And it's recorded all over the place. So like Marvin is sitting in on piano, actually on most of these songs. Yeah. So he's actually playing piano on the songs with the Funk Brothers. Um, and they record those those main tracks. And then he records his vocals. Then he records other vocals. Then he records his harmonies. And he's kind of harmonizing with himself. But he records these two different vocals, especially on this track. And he goes to one of the producers um, and he goes, I don't know which one to pick. Because they're different. They're different melodies. Yeah. He's like, which one do you like better? And the guy, I don't know what he was thinking, but apparently he made a mistake and he blends them both together. And that's why both of Marvin, there's two Marvins singing on the track. And Marvin goes, this is brilliant. This is great. 
And it becomes Marvin's signature for the rest of his career. I'm sorry. So that was a mistake. It was like a mistake or like the guy just kind of did it. Yeah. Or he just didn't know what he was being asked to do and just was Again. like. Exactly. Wow. It's that's, chaos. That's wild. I know. I mean, it's, it's great, though. It's interesting that it became his signature, it's too. Perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. And so he employs that style for the rest of the album as well. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just one of Marvin's really like great gifts to music mm. is that whole experimenting in the studio and really finding his voice by finding multiple versions of his voice on one right. track. Right. He also then uh, overdubs the the orchestration you know, the strings, which are huge and soaring and flow throughout the entire album. A lot of that is done by the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, oh, which is a big deal. And again, that's okay. that classical. So he went out of house. Exactly. Hmm. And then again, and I mentioned this, uh, they he steals the mixes to the album. And he does this uh, like revolutionary, like last minute remixing. And they record these other um, uh, percussion tracks. And you can hear those percuss- percussion tracks throughout side A. They never stop. That's so interesting. Yeah. So I actually want to listen to one of the um, uh, crossovers from one of the song to, to yeah, kind of yeah, give yeah. you an idea of what's happening here. So we're going to go from the end of God is love to mercy, mercy me. Don't go and talk about my talk God is my So you can hear you know, those congas. Mercy, Father. He'll be merciful, my friend. Oh, yeah, he will. All he has of us, I know. So the Congress are still going, right? Even though there's like a hard cut there. Yeah. That's also, not like the what most... a beautiful transition. Yeah, I think so too. And I think the other ones are more smooth, but it just freaking works on this yeah. one. So since we're here at Mercy, Mercy Me, this is one of my favorite all-time songs. Oh, it's so good. It is so good. It makes me feel a way. <laughs> Did you know that I uh, once sang this song in high school? <gasps> really? Oh, boy. Did you nail it? No. <laughs> Although the teachers, like, because I was in that music program, they were all very nice. They were like, oh, we didn't think you were going to pull it off, but you pulled it off. I'm like, okay, cool. I didn't pull it off. <laughs> Is there any kind of a video recording device that was used while you I don't think on, I don't think on that show there was. <sighs> Tragedy. Yeah. I would love to see You know that. where we recorded that? Where? Or uh, played it? Was at Dawn's. Dons? Yeah, we played at Dons. Really? For for <laughs> those of you that aren't from here, Dons is like this tiki themed seafood place uh that's in uh Sunset Beach mm-hmm. in Southern California. And it's kind of like an iconic spot. It's since closed down, but I've heard that it might be reopening. So that's very <laughs> funny that that is where mm-hmm. you perform this. <laughs> um so in Mercy Mercy Me, people talk about how um, before it's time, the song was like what he's talking about. The, yeah. The ecological stuff. Yeah. It, that is actually very interesting. I've never, never thought about it that way. Huh? Obviously I've thought about it. You know, he's talking mm-hmm. about fish full of mercury and yeah, you know what's happening. I'm glad you brought up that line. Why does that stand out so much? That's what I'm talking about though. Like his writing on this album is almost like prose. But it's still so poetic and it yeah. still works so well th- with the music that you, 
it stands out, but it doesn't feel out of place. Like, I don't know, like a Bob Dylan song, right? right? Where he, he's just like, like talking really fast. Uh, it's still within, <laughs> <laughs> but it's really interesting that he takes on this new lyrical style because yeah. he wrote songs for Motown in the past. Sure. But with this new lyrical style, he's like being very specific about things. Mm. Fish with Mercury. Yeah. You know? Um, All the blue skies have turned gray. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. I, I do think that this song is beautiful, though. Mm-hmm. Like, it really... Oh, it's, it's ta- but it's, amazing. It's, but it's interesting, because it is a beautiful song, and but it makes anguished. you feel... Yes. That's As what I mean. Whole album like, is. You're right. You're not wrong. Also, a lot of his work after this is the same vibe, where you're like, wow, it's a great song, but mm. like, my God, is it sad. Yeah. <laughs> and his singing on it is so smooth. And again, right, yeah. like, he's, he's gone back from that... Um, part of his career where he's like being forced kind of to sing songs out of his register. Right. He's in his comfort zone. Yeah. You know, he only really gets into that register when it, when he needs to, mm-hmm. to, to say something with attitude. Um, were there any other songs on the first side that, that really stuck out to you? I mean, those are the two heavy hitters yeah. for sure. Um, no, not, not really. Yeah. Not for me. Um, I love all of them. They're, I mean, they're all great. Yeah. yeah. What's happening, brother, gets stuck in my head a lot. Same with um, uh, God is Love, actually. Oh, it's a great Just song. Very funny for an atheistic uh, Jewish boy. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> interesting uh, choice, but, uh, Chad. <laughs> I, I, well, I love that song for the also the way that it leads into Mercy, Mercy. Oh, man. I mean, it's just such like yeah. a, a continuation of this like mm-hmm. beautiful journey. Yeah. And another one was, uh, that's important on this first side is flying high in the friendly sky, which is a song about, um, heroin and it's the effect that it's having on in black communities at that moment. Um, and other, other artists were talking about this at the time as well. James Brown has a song called King heroin. Um, and, and artists were starting to die from heroin at this time. Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, um, not necessarily heroin, but complications with drugs and, and yeah. illness um frankie lyman who was from like the um late 50s rock and roll era sure um and alan wilson of can't heat also overdosed on heroin um or sleeping pills and yeah so i mean we're starting to lose artists of the time i do also think this year specifically i, I actually talked to chad about this off pod but um there's a documentary on apple tv called uh, 1971 totally and artists during that time were coming out with all of this music that wasn't just that, not to say fluff is bad, but like that fluff music where it's like love and we're happy and blah, 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 blah. But it's like Mm -hmm. protest music and talking about the things that are affecting their communities and their world. And it's interesting that, you know, this, this, this whole album. Yeah, it really, really does. Yeah. If you haven't watched that, please go watch it because it's so fucking fun. <laughs> and if someone would like to give me their Apple TV login, I would be <laughs> delighted to finish the series. <laughs> DM us on Instagram with your login information. <laughs> so side B of this album, if you can imagine like that all was side A yeah, of the, of the vinyl. So from, from what's going on all the way up to mercy, mercy me, um, that's side A. Side B is only three songs. Right on, Holy Holy, Inner City Blues. Oh, so good. Inner City Blues. I know. I can't. I know. Okay, it's, we're going to talk about that. Right. Before that, let's talk a little bit about Right On. Um, and let's play a little excerpt from it. 
So Emily just asked me what uh, what that g- 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 I can't <laughs> that percussion thing. I can't. I can't do it with my mouth. I don't think it's a washboard. It's like um. It reminds me of It's those... this wood thing. I've seen yeah. it before. It's with, with slots and in like it. A... Yeah, and you yeah. basically do that. You just drag like a stick yeah. up on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also used in Spill the Wine. That's oh, all. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lot, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> totally. So the first thing I noticed about the second side um, in, in relation to the first side is like it's a total break and feel. Yeah. Even though the whole album works as itself, like as a whole, it, it's way funkier it's kind of nasty got this nasty groove yeah um the piano riff that marvin's playing is like kind of scandalous almost in a way and you get those you get those trills from the from the flute and i get to say a word i always love to say flautist does a wonderful (laughs) job with those trills yeah yes flute why why do you love to say that word i don't know it just feels right i don't know flautist it just sounds funny it's the way it feels in your mouth a flautist (laughs) Um, and so the song is funky, but it's also jazzy, right? Yeah. Um, you can almost like imagine yourself being like in a jazz club and there's like just tons of cigarette smoke. Oh, for sure. There's definitely more jazz elements to this song, I think, than we've seen in the previous songs on this album. Do you agree? Yeah. Um, yes and no, but yes. I think oh, there's a lot of jazz elements in what's going on. Yeah, you're right. And, and also like and the, the, oh yeah. And the, like, there's some like unconventional structure stuff like throughout sure. that first first half. But like, this one feels to me like a jazz band playing to you right now. Yes, yeah. Um, and I agree with you with the smoky room, and the red <laughs> walls, and the thing and the stuff. Yeah, and I love uh, like the third part of the song when like everything just goes to chaos and breaks down. Yeah, it's um, great. I know, and it's like this. He's like stair stepping you down level by level by level, and then he just brings it back up. Yeah, and like there's that insane saxophone crying basically. They're going nuts. The sexy saxophone, <laughs> as I like to say. <laughs> you know, and then there's like that shiny Celeste thing, like dinging in the background, like heavenly. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing. Um, and then the song finally falls apart and goes right into Holy Holy, which like sends you on this little drifting boat ride down the river of spiritual emotion. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's pretty much all I have to say Chad, about that song. the poet laureate. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, do you have anything to say about Holy Holy? I think you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then we finally get to Inner City Blues. This is one of my favorite songs of all time, and I think a perfect bookend to this to this record. It's fantastic. It was one of only it was one of four singles from this album. I think it was the third single. Okay. Um, the first was What's Going On. The second I think was Mercy Mercy Me, and this was the third. And then the fourth was Save the Children, which is really just not a single to me. It's like probably Marvin being like. Well, screw you, Barry Gordy. I am going to release this, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That rebellious spirit. <laughs> yeah. But Inner City Blues is, oh, my God, what a banger. I also just want to say that I played this last night at our local watering hole. Oh, did you? And uh, <laughs> Chad was late, so he missed it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I played it on the jukebox. It was great. Nobody liked it except for me. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think of this song? Oh, I've, I... Love this song. There's something about it, the melody, the way it's structured. It just it's it's a perfect capstone, in mm-hmm. my opinion, for the whole album. Let's play a little bit. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Oh 
I mean, like, come on. <laughs> come on. You're not supposed to sound that good. It's like velvet. It's like it's like hot. It's like a hot piece of bread with butter on top of it, and the butter's just melting and oozing off the sides. Sizzling. It's insanity. It's amazing. Yeah, I can't. A lot of that that sizzle. That I mean, it comes to me from the bass mm. and how it works with like the other elements of the song, like the cowbell. Yeah. You know, and that guitar chink, which totally. is a total Motown thing. That chink. Yeah. Um, so the bass is Bob Babbitt on this song. Uh, so like basically the whole first side minus Mercy Mercy Me was James Jamerson, that famous legendary bassist. Um, and the, the lay second on the half, floor drunk bassist. <laughs> yeah, the legendary drunk. Just to drunk. clarify. <laughs> One and the same? One and the same. <laughs> and then Bob Babbitt plays on Mercy Mercy Me and the entire second half. Mm. And this bass line is really interesting to me. And again, in a jazzy way, because this bass line to me sounds a lot like um, um, the uh, Miles Davis song, So What? And it does a lot of the thing. Do you know that song? Yeah, I do. Um, and it, it works a lot the same way. It's it's extremely melodic. Mm-hmm. It's carrying it's carrying the song, and yeah. it's like it's like telling a story. Yeah. Uh, and totally sets the vibe. Um, incredible. And you mentioned the triangle when we were Ugh. when we were listening to the song, just dingling and just I, doing its I, thing. <laughs> just dingling and dang donging. <laughs> No, but seriously, there's something about it. It like it because it cuts through the music, right? Yeah. Like that pure sound, and yeah. it just like kind of makes you like, whoa, right? I don't know. It creates this ambiance, and it yeah. again, it cuts through, like you said. Yeah. Um, it's just a perfect groove. It's perfect arranging, perfect producing by Marvin. It's the chef's kiss, and then Marvin's <laughs> Marvin's falsetto on top of that is just, it's amazing, unbelievable upsettingly good yeah you know the kind um, of good that just makes you go like <laughs> fucking a <laughs> um like in um right on um i think that he's a little more this whole second half he's a little more angered like in the first half he's like distressed like the narr- either marvin Gaye or the narrator that he's created right right a- an amalgamation of him his brother and him yeah um he's distressed he's like looking around he's saying what's going on like what's happening here yeah you know what why why is there so much police brutality why are these families struggling in the inner cities why is my community being addicted to heroin yeah what's happening yeah um and in the second half he's like what the hell like what are we going to do about this like i'm angry about this and there's so many um moments in the song with his lyrics where he again he's using that new form of 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 lyrical composition where mm-hmm. he's saying specific things right like he's saying like but honey i can't pay my taxes mm. like that's very real and down to earth yeah and of this era right like if someone i mean the stupid example but like if someone in the Roman era actually they probably would know that cuz they paid taxes too they sure did man taxes <laughs> might be eternal <laughs> <laughs> But um, I really think this is um, a really amazing uh, portrait of what life was like in in these black ghettos of the early 1970s America and how bleak the economic conditions were and the emotional effect it was having on black communities who lived and survived in these places. Yeah. So you think Marvin went, Marvin went through the five stages of grief while writing? <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Kind of right. Yeah. If you're saying he's going through this emotional landscape, you know, I feel like by then, do you think we hit acceptance in this yeah. song? Or do you think it's still <sighs> anger? I don't know. I, I think probably because not, not necessarily um, acceptance, you know, 
let's get right to the ending because this song, like I said, bookends the whole album. He sure. recalls the theme of what's going on musically and with some of the lyrics at the end um, when it kind of breaks down and it's kind of ethereal. And I felt the same way as I felt when we left Currents when listening to Tame Impala, which is another um, concept album. Yeah. Right? Con- you know, Currents was so much about growth and change, and yet the last song you get is what? It's a song about making the same mistakes again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Right? And and this song also sounds kind of like it's anxious. You don't, it doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't yeah. leave you at a good moment. Right. It kind of leaves you still at a cliffhanger almost. Yeah. Like, like you don't feel comfortable. Uh-huh. And so when Marvin says at the end, mother, 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 calling out to his mother, who he's always needed, like desperately in his life. Everybody thinks we're wrong. Who are they to judge us simply because we wear our hair long? And it's like echoey and cavernous and goosebumps. Well, and that's a callback from what's going on. Exactly. So now we've come full circle. We've come full circle. And what has changed? Nothing. And that could be said for today as well. Sure. We're living through, we just lived through 2020. I mean, there were massive protests um, about horrible things that, you know, police did to black people and have been doing to black people for decades um well and it's interesting that you called out the mother 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 mm because my brain immediately went to george floyd calling out for his mother there you go in the last seconds of his life i mean it's it's i mean it's tragic and that's why this album is i mean fortunately or unfortunately like it's it's eternal in a lot of ways yeah the stuff that marvin's talking about even though he's talking about his specific period in time sure it still is relevant today, unfortunately, but I think that it can bring so many people joy or help them get through things yeah, or remind them or make them think of, uh, of things in a different way. Or remind them just that simply that they're not alone and yeah. it's a shared experience. That's and a great like, point. You know, there are other people out there that feel the same way as you and are mm-hmm. trying to support you and help you get through it. Yeah. Even if it's just through a song. Totally. And I had the same feeling, um, again, about how I felt about Currents. Um, I didn't want the album then. Yeah. I love this album, What's Going On. Um, and I really didn't want it to end. Yeah. Um, and you just hear that percussion player still hitting that conga. Yeah. The guy who basically, who they have playing the entire album as a through throughway, he is the last thing you hear as the album echoes and fades out. Sure. Ties the whole album together. This is a perfect concept album. Yeah, it's a nice little thread. Mm-hmm. And uh, that pretty much wraps up what's going on. I'm kind of sad. I know, but this won't be our last Marvin episode. Okay. Uh, we didn't get to so much that I wanted to talk about um, <laughs> because of time. <laughs> but also because I think his career is so extensive it spans over deck literal decades Mm -hmm. so like there's a lot to talk about there's a lot to unpack he was a very impactful artist yeah um and i think that his career is like it it changes so much over time so yeah um i think we should do an episode on here my dear which is well 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 (laughs) which is one of marvin's uh later albums yes um that's also a concept album where I think he really takes this lyrical style that he uses on this album to its fullest potential. 
This album is wild. Here, my dear, is pretty crazy. So yeah. hopefully in the future, you will see more Marvin Gaye um, yeah. podcasts. Maybe I'll take over next time. I think you should. I think maybe I will. You have any uh, final thoughts? No, just wow. What a great album. Honestly, start to finish. And thematically, the way we move through each song, each movement of each song, it just... Yeah. The, the fact that, like, like you said, that we are like white, kids growing up in orange county and when we heard these songs growing up they still resonated and and mikhail's grandmother right. and do you know what i mean like it, the it, music it, is good in, in and of itself right and then when you get to be of an age where you can actually think about what he's actually yes. talking about yeah it, it's an album that just grows with you and you get deeper into it and you grow with yeah and, yeah yeah perfect it's beautiful so if you liked what you heard today which i hope you did <laughs> don't tell us if you didn't uh, <laughs> um if you liked what you heard today please 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 tell a friend um that would help us out greatly and you can follow us uh on twitter and on instagram at music club pod you can find that uh spotify playlist um that we created for today's episode has so much music on it a lot that we didn't even get to today um has a lot of these other takes and mixes um from the album which are really really interesting if you're a music nerd like us um nerd out <laughs> <laughs> yeah go go listen to some marvin Gaye. go listen yeah. to what's going on enjoy it and uh thanks for clubbing with us yeah thanks for coming to the club guys <laughs>